my unicorns, dragons, demons, and trolls. It's your girl, Dark Pegasus, here. So, it has been a few days, and the poll on my Twitter is closed. So, from what it looks like, we have at least one vote there. And I also had one vote on my personal Facebook about this. It uh, looks like we're going to go ahead and read Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. I have had this book for a really long time. I got into the book back when I was in high school, and that was early 2000s, so you can see how old the book is, slash how old I am, per se. Um, with that, we were going over the score for the play, like all the songs and stuff, and going about telling how their feelings were, and, and what should be assumed in that song, and... I decided I wanted to read the book. I was dead set that I had to read this book. And then I remember having a classmate tell me that the book is way different than the actual play. And after looking into it more, I found that somebody had a no-no copy. We don't advocate for bootlegs or anything like that um, of the play. And I watched the play. And I read the book, and I will tell you, it's the same as when somebody writes a book, and then they get a contract with a production company to make a movie. The movie company takes their liberties with the, the story, because now they have copyrights to it, and they change things. I'm assuming, and this is assuming, it's in my opinion, okay, it's because they actually took L. Frank Baum's version of The Wizard of Oz, and they took Gregory Maguire's version of Wicked, and they kind of merged the two together, from what I can tell. Um, it has been a long time since I have read this book, so I don't remember a lot about it. Um, I remember the key parts, but I do remember that they they have a lot of stuff in the, the play that is actually not in the book. So, with that being said, this is going to be a longer book. Um, then the Podkin one ear. The Podkin one ear, my 11 year old brought home. So uh, it's more scaled towards his reading demographic, I think. Um, even though it does have a little bit of violence and meat in it, like alcohol content. But um, to be fair, it's, it's really very child friendly, I think. This one is a little bit more on the adult side. It is, this is not a PG uh, or G rated podcast. So there is going to be like sexual content or um, graphic content, maybe horror books or, or stuff like that. I haven't decided fully how far we're going to go with it. So I just want to make sure you have that warning that this is a little bit more on the adult side. With that, let's get into it. Prologue on the Yellow Brick Road. A mile above Oz, the witch balanced on the wind's forward edge as if she were a green fleck of the land itself flung up and sent wheeling away by the turbulent air. She used the broom as a sort of balustrade, stepping down from the sky like one of her flying monkeys. She finished up on the topmost bough of a black willow tree. Beneath, hidden by the fronds, her prey had paused to take their rest. The witch tucked her broom under her arm. Crab-like and quiet, she scuttled down a little at a time until she was mere twenty feet above them. Wind moved the dangling tendrils of the tree. The witch stared and listened. There were four of them. She could see a huge cat of some sort, a lion, was it? And a shiny woodman. The tin woodman was picking nits out of the lion's mane, 
white and purple summer thunderheads mounted around her. Below, the yellow brick road looped back on itself like a relaxed noose. Though winter storms and the crowbars of agitators had torn up the road, still it led relentlessly to the Emerald City. The witch could see the companions trudging along, maneuvering around the buckled sections, skirting trenches, skipping when the way was clear. They seemed oblivious of their fate, but it was not up to the witch to enlighten them. An animated scarecrow lolled nearby, blowing dandelion heads into the wind. The girl was out of sight, behind shifting curtains of the willow. Of course, to hear them tell it, it was the surviving sister who is the crazy one, said the lion. What a witch! Psychologically warped, possessed by demons, insane, not a pretty picture. She was castrated at birth, replied the tin woman calmly. She was born hermaphroditic, or maybe entirely male. Oh, you, you see castration everywhere you look, said the lion. I'm only repeating what folks say, said the tin woodman. Everyone is entitled to an opinion, said the lion airily. She was deprived of a mother's love, is how I've heard it. She was an abused child. She was addicted to medicine for her skin condition. She has been unlucky in love, said the tin woodman. Like the rest of us, the tin woodman paused and placed his hand on the center of his chest, killing the lion. The lion got spooked and rolled on top of the scarecrow, whimpering, and the tin woodsman collapsed on top of them both. Good friend, should we be wary of that storm, said the girl. The rising winds moved the curtain of greenery at last, and the witch caught sight of the girl. She was sitting with her feet tucked underneath her and her arms wrapped around her knees. She was not a dainty thing, but a good-sized farm girl, as if in grief. She's a woman who prefers the company of other women, said the scarecrow, sitting up. She's the spurned lover of a married man. She is a married man. The witch was so stunned that she nearly lost her grip on the branch. The last thing she ever cared for was gossip. Yet she has been out of touch for so long that she was astonished at the vigorous opinions of these random nobodies. She's a despot, a dangerous tyrant, said the lion with conviction. The tin woodman pulled harder than was necessary on a lock of mane. Everything's dangerous to you, you craven thing. I hear she's a champion of home rule for the so-called Winkies. Whoever she is, she must surely be grieving the death of her sister, said the child in a somber voice too rich, too sincere for one so young. The witch's skin crawled. Don't go feeling sympathetic now. I certainly can't, the tin woodsman sniffed a bit cynically. But Dorothy's right, said the scarecrow. No one is exempt from grief. The witch was deeply irked by their patronizing speculation. She moved around the trunk of a tree, stretching to catch a glimpse of the child. The wind was picking up, and the scarecrow shivered. While the tin woodsman continued fussing over the lion's tresses, he leaned against the lion, who held him tenderly. Storm on the horizon, said the scarecrow. Miles off, thunder echoed. There is a witch on the horizon, said the tin woodsman. Dick dressed in blue and white checks and a pinafore. In her lap, a vile little dog cowered and whined. The storm makes you skittish. It's natural after what you've been through, said the tin woodsman. Relax. The witch's fingers dug into the bark of the tree. She still could not see the girl's face. Just her strong forearms and the crown of her head where her dark hair was pulled back into pigtails. Was she to be taken seriously, or was she merely a blow-away dandelion seed caught on the wrong side of the wind? If she could see the girl's face, the witch felt she might know. But as the witch craned outward from the trunk, the girl at the same time twisted her face, turning away. The storm is coming closer, and in a hurry. The feeling in her voice rose as the wind rose. She had a throaty vehemence like someone arguing through the threat of impending tears. 
I know storms. I know how they come upon you. We're safer here, says the tin woodsman. Certainly we are not, answered the girl, because this tree is the highest point around, and if lightning is to strike it, it will strike here. She clutched her dog. Didn't we see a shed farther up the road? Come, come, Scarecrow. There's lightning. You'll burn the fastest. Come on. She was up and running in an ungainly way, and her companions followed in a mounting panic. As the first hard drops of rain fell, the witch caught sight, not of the girl's face, but of the shoes. Her sister's shoes. They sparkled even in the darkening afternoon. They sparkled like yellow diamonds and em embers of blood and thorny stars. If she had seen the shoes first, the witch would have never been able to listen to the girl or her friends. But the girl's legs had been tucked beneath her skirt. Now the witch was reminded of her need. The shoes should be hers. Hadn't she endured enough? Hadn't she earned them? The witch would fall on the girl from the sky and wrestle those shoes off her impertinent feet if only she could. But the storm from which the companions raced farther and faster along the Olympic road troubled the witch more than it did the girl, apparently too desiccated ever to take root. But surely the curse was on the land of Oz, not on her, though Oz had given her a twisted life. Hadn't it also made her capable? No matter that, the companions had hurried away. The witch could wait. They would meet again who had gone through rain and the scarecrow whom lightning could burn. The witch could not venture out in such a vicious, insinuating wetness. Instead, she had to tuck herself between some exposed roots of the black willow tree, where no water could endanger her, and wait for the storm to pass. She would emerge, she always had before. The punishing political climate of Oz had beat her down, dried her up, tossed her away like a seedling she had drifted. Section 1. Munchkinlanders the root of evil. From the crumpled bed, the wife said, I think today's the day. Look how low I've gone. Today? That would be like you. Perverse and inconvenient, said her husband, teasing her, standing at the doorway and looking outward. Over the lakes, the fields, the forested slopes beyond. He could just make out the chimneys of rush margins, breakfast fire smoking. The worst possible moment for my ministry, naturally. The wife yawned. There's not a lot of choice involved. From what I hear, your body gets this big and it takes over. If you can't accommodate it, sweetheart, you just get out of its way. It's on a track of its own and nothing stops it now. She pushed herself up, trying to see over the rise of her belly. I feel like a hostage to myself. Or to the baby. Exert some self-control. And a few eggs and the whispery tips of autumn chives in the other. She sang to herself, but only in short phrases. Frex wasn't meant to hear her. His sober gown buttoned tight to the collar, his sandals strapped on over leggings. He came to her side and helped her sit up. Think of it as a spiritual exercise, custody of the senses, bodily as well as ethical continence. Self-control, she laughed, itching toward the edge of the bed. I have no self left. I'm only a host for the parasite. Where's my self anyway? Where'd I leave that tired old thing? Think of me. His tone had changed. He meant this. Freck, she headed him off. When the volcano's ready, there's no priest in the world can pray it quiet. What will my fellow ministers think? They'll get together and say, Brother Frexbar, did you allow your wife to deliver your first child when you had a community problem to solve? How inconsiderate of you. It shows a lack of authority. You're fired from the position. She was ribbing him now, for there was no one to fire him. The nearest bishop was too distant to pay attention to the particulars of a unionist cleric in the hinterland. It's just such terrible timing. I do think you bear half the blame for the timing, she said. I mean, after all, Frax. That's how the thinking goes, but I wonder. You wonder, she laughed, her head going far back. 
The line from her ear to the hollow below her throat reminded Frex of an elegant silver ladle. Even in the morning disarray, with a belly like a scow, she was majestically good-looking. Her hair had the bright lacquer look of wet fallen oak leaves in sunlight. He blamed her for being born to privilege and admired her efforts to overcome it, and all the while he loved her too. "'You mean you wonder if you're the father?' she grabbed the bedstead. Frex took hold of her other arm and hauled her half upright. Penitence, then a homely one. In the kitchen yard, Melena floated gently, not with the normal gravity of pregnancy, but as if inflated, a huge balloon trailing its strings through the dirt. She carried a skillet in one hand. Or do you question the fatherlessness of men in general? She stood, mammoth, an ambulatory island. Moving out of the door at a slug's pace, she laughed at such an idea. He could hear her laughing from the outhouse even as he began to dress for the day's battle. Frex combed his beard and oiled his scalp. He fastened a clasp of bone and rawhide at the nape of his neck to keep the hair out of his face. Because his expression today had to be readable from a distance. There could be no fuzziness to his meaning. He applied some coal dust to darken his eyebrows, a smear of red wax on his flat cheeks. He shaded his lips. A handsome priest attracted more penance. Frex took from its hiding place beneath a chest of drawers the report sent to him from the fellow ministers over in the village of three dead trees. He hid the brown pages within his sash. He had been keeping them from his wife, afraid that she would want to come along, to see the fun, if it was amusing, or suffer the thrill of it, if it was terrifying. As Frex breathed deeply, readying his lungs for a day of oratory, Melena dangled a wooden spoon in the skillet and stirred the eggs. The tinkle of cowbells sounded across the lake. She did not listen, or she listened, but to something else, to something inside her. It was a sound without melody, like dream music, remembered for its effect, but not for its harmonic distresses and recoveries. She imagined it was the child inside her humming for happiness. She knew he would be a singing child. She loved to watch the arabesque of fingers and two forks. She suspected that beneath his righteous asceticism, he possessed a hidden longing for the easy life. Every day is a great crisis for our society. She was being flip answering him in the terms men use. Dear thick thing, he didn't hear the irony in her voice. We stand at a crossroads. Idle tree glooms. Traditional values in jeopardy. Truth under siege and virtue abandoned. He wasn't talking to her as much as practicing his tirade against the coming spectacle of violence and magic. There was a side to Frex that verged on despair, unlike most men. He was able to channel it to benefit his life's work. With some difficulty, she set herself down on a bench. Whole choruses were singing wordlessly inside her head. Was this common for every labor and delivery? She would have liked to ask the nosy local women who would come around this afternoon, growling shyly at her condition. But she didn't dare. She couldn't jettison her pretty accent, which they found affected. But she could avoid sounding ignorant about these basic matters. Frex noticed her silence. You're not angry I'm leaving you today. Angry, she raised her eyebrows, as if she had never encountered the concept before. History crawls along on the peg legs of small individual lives, said Frex, and at the same time larger eternal forces converge. You can't attend to both arenas at once. Our child may not have a small life. Now isn't the time to argue. Do you want to distract me from holy work today? We're facing the presence of real evil and rush margins. I couldn't live with myself if I ignored it. He meant this, and for such intensity she had fallen in love with him. But she hated him for it, too, of course. Threats come, they'll come again, her last word on the subject. 
Your son will only be born once, and if this watery upheaval inside is any indication, I think it's today. There will be other children. She turned away as he could not see the rage in her face. Melina heard Frex inside, beginning to extemporize, warming up, calling forth the rolling phrases of his argument, convincing himself again of his righteousness. How did the proverb go, the one that Nanny sing-songed her years ago in the nursery? Born in the morning, woe without warning, afternoon child, woeful and wild. Born in the evening, woe ends in grieving, night baby, morning, same as the morning. But she remembered this as a joke fondly. Woe is the natural end of life, yet we go on having babies. No, said Nanny, an echo in Melina's mind, and editorializing as usual. No, no, you pretty little pampered hussy. You don't go on having babies, that's quite apparent. We only have babies when we're young enough not to know how grim life turns out. Once we really get the full measure of it, we're slow learners, we women. We dry up and disgust and sensibly help production. But men don't dry up, Melina objected. They can follow to the death. And we're slow learners, Nanny countered, but they can't learn at all. Breakfast, said Melina, spinning eggs onto a wooden plate. Her son would not be as dull as most men. She had raised him up to defy the onward progress of woe. It is a time of crisis for our society, recited Frex. For a man who condemned worldly pleasures, he ate with elegance. But she couldn't sustain the fury at him. Perhaps this was her moral failing. She wasn't much given to worrying about moral failings as a rule. Having a minister as a husband seemed to stir enough religious thought for one couple. She lapsed sullen into silence. Frex nibbled at his meal. It's the devil, said Frex, sighing. The devil is coming. Don't say a thing like that on a day our child is expected. I mean the temptation enriched margins, and you know what I mean, Melena. Words are words, and what's said is said, she answered. I don't require all your attention, Frex, but I do need some of it. She dropped the skilt with a crash on the bench that stood against the cottage wall. Well, and likewise, he said. What do you think I'm up against today? How can I convince my flock to turn away from the razzle-dazzle spectacle of idolatry? I will probably come back tonight having lost to a smarter attraction. You might achieve a child today. I look forward to failure. Still, as he said this, he looked proud. To fail in the cause of a high moral concern was satisfying to him. How could it compare with the flesh, blood, mess, and noise of having a baby? He stood at last to leave. A wind came up over the lake now, smudging the topmost reaches of the columns of kitchen smoke. They looked, thought Melina, like funnels of water swirling down drains and narrowing, focusing spirals. Be well, my love, said Frex, although he had his stern public expression on from forehead to toes. Yes, Melina sighed. The child punched her deep down, and she had to hurry to the outhouse again. Be holy, and I'll be thinking of you. My backbone, my breastplate, and also, try not to be killed. The will of the unnamed god, said Frex. My will, too, she said blasphemously. Apply your will to that which deserves it, he answered. Now he was the minister, and she was the sinner, an arrangement she did not particularly enjoy. Goodbye, she said, and chose the stink and relief of the outhouse over standing to wave him out of sight as he strode along the road to rush margins. The audience roared. Grind, the actual well digger, sweated drops as big as grapes. Letta pretended to go. The clock of the time dragon. Frex was more concerned for Melina than she knew. He stopped at the first fisherman's hut he saw and spoke with a man at the half door. Could a woman or two spend the day and, if needed, the night with Melina? It would be a kindness. Frex nodded with a wince of gratitude, acknowledging without words that Melena was not a great favorite in these parts. 
Then before continuing around the end of Illiswater and over to Rush Margins, he stopped at a fallen tree and drew two letters from a sash. The writer was a distant cousin of Frex's, also a minister. Weeks earlier, the cousin had spent time in valuable ink on his inattentive husband. Then the dragon reared back and stretched two fingers, but her daughter had already disappeared from shame. Before the evening was out, description on what was being called the Clock of the Time Dragon. Frex prepared himself for the day's holy campaign by rereading about the idle clock. I write in haste, Brother Frexbar, to catch my impressions before they fade. The clock of the time dragon is mounted on a wagon and stands as high as a giraffe. It is nothing more than a tottering, freestanding theater, punched on all four sides with alcoves and proscenium arches. On the flat roof is a clockwork dragon, an invention of green-painted leather, silvery claws, ruby-jeweled eyes, its skin is made of hundreds of overlapping discs of copper, bronze, and iron. Beneath the flexible folds of its scales is an armature controlled by clockwork. The time dragon circles on its pedestal, flexes its narrow leathery wings, they make a sound like a bellows, and belches out sulfuric balls of flaming orange stink. Below, featured in the dozens of doorways, windows, and porches are puppets, marionettes, figurines. Creatures of folktale, caricatures of peasants and royalty alike, animals and fairies and saints. Our unionist saints, Brother Frexbar, stolen from underneath us. I get enraged. The figures move on sprockets. They wheel in and out of doorways. They bend at the waist. They dance and dawdle and dally with each other. Who has engendered this time dragon, this fake oracle, this propaganda tool for weakness that challenged the power of a unionism and of the unnamed god? The clock's handles were a dwarf and some narrow-waisted minions who seemed to have only enough brain capacity among them to pass a hat. Who else was benefiting besides the dwarf and his beauty boys? The cousin's second letter had warned that the clock was making its way to next to rush margins. It had told a more specific story. The entertainment begins with a thrum of strings and a rattle of bones. The crowd pushed a close ooing. Within the lighted windows of a stage, we saw a marriage bed with a puppet wife and a husband. The husband was asleep in the wife's side. She made a motion with her carved hands to suggest that her husband was disappointingly small. The audience shrieked with laughter. The puppet wife went to sleep herself. When she was snoring, the puppet husband sneaked out of bed. At this point, up above, the dragon turned on its base and pointed his talons into the crowd, indicating without a doubt a humble well digger named Grine, who has been a faithful which lit up to reveal the puppet husband wandering out into the night. Along came a puppet widow, in a come-hither gesture, isolating a widow named Letta and her snaggletooth maiden daughter. The crowd hushed and fell away from Grind, Letta, and the blushing maid as if they had suddenly been inflicted with running sores. Dragging along a protesting, flinting-toothed daughter, the widow kissed the puppet husband and pulled off his leather trousers. He was equipped with two full sets of male goods, one in the front and another hanging off the base of his spine. The widow positioned her daughter on the abbreviated prong in the front, and herself took advantage of the more menacing arrangement in the rear. The three puppets bucked and rocked, emitting squeals of glee. When the puppet widow and her daughter were through, they dismounted and kissed the adulterous puppet husband. Then they need him, simultaneously fore and aft. He swung on springs and hinges, trying to hold all of his wounded parts. Grind was set upon by his agitated neighbors and investigated for the grotesque anomaly. Letta was shunned. Her daughter seems to have vanished entirely. It was suspect the worst. At least Grind wasn't killed. Yet who can say how our souls have been stamped by witnessing such a cruel drama? 
All souls are hostages to their human envelopes, but souls must decay and suffer at such indignity, don't you agree? With sprigged hair and high color. Sometimes it seems to Frex that every itinerant which and toothless gibbering seer in Oz who could perform even the most transparent spells has seized on this outback district of Wen Hardings to scratch out a trade. He knew the folks from Rush Margins were humble, their lives were hard and their hopes few. As the drought dragged on, the traditional Unionist faith was eroding. Frex was aware that the clock of the time dragon combined the appeals of ingenuity and magic and he would have to call on his deepest reserves of religious conviction to overcome it. If his congregation should prove vulnerable to so-called pleasure faith, succumbing to spectacle and violence, well, what next? He would prevail. He was their minister. He had pulled their teeth and buried their babies and blessed their kitchen pots for years. He had abased himself in their names. He had wandered with an unkempt beard and a begging bowl from hamlet to hamlet, leaving poor Melina alone in the minister's lodge for weeks at a time. He had sacrificed for them. They couldn't be swayed by this time-dragging creature. They owed him. He moved on shoulder square, jaw set, stomach in a sour uproar. The sky was brown with flying sand and grit. The wind rushed high over the hills with the sound of tremulous wail, as if pushing through some fissure rock on a ridge beyond any Frex could see. The Birth of a Witch It was nearly evening by the time Frex had worked up the courage to enter the ramshack hamlet of Rush Margins. He was in a deep sweat. He hid his heels to the ground and pumped his clenched fist and called out in a hoarse, carrying tone, Hist, O ye of small confidence, gather while ye may, for temptation is abroad, to try ye sorely. The words were archaic, even ridiculous, but they worked. Here came the sullen fishermen dragging their empty nets up from the dock, as if indeed invested with life. The skin of this house was decorated in carnival colors, burnished with gold leaf. The fishermen gaped as it drew near. Before the dwarf could announce the time of the performance, before the crowd of youths could draw out the clubs, Frex leaped on the lower step of the thing, a fold-down stage on hinges. Why is this thing called a clock? The only clock face it has is flat, dull, and lost in all that distracting detail. Furthermore, the hands don't move. Look, see for yourselves. They're painted to remain at one minute before midnight. All you see here is mechanics, my friends. I know this for a fact. You'll see mechanical cornfields growing, moons waxing and waning, a volcano to spew a soft red cloth done up of black and red sequins. With all this tickety-talk business, why not have a pair of circulating arms on the clock face? Why not? I ask you, I ask you, yes, you, Garnet, and you, Stoy, and you, Peripa, why no real clock here? They were not listening, Garnet and Soy and Peripa, nor were the others. They were too busy staring in anticipation. The answer, of course, is that the clock isn't meant to measure earthly time, but the time of the soul, redemption and condemnation time. Here came the substance farmers. For the soul, each instant is always a minute short of judgment. One minute short of judgment, my friends. If you die in the next sixty seconds, would you want to spend eternity in the suffocating depths reserved for idlers? Awful lot of noise in the neighborhood tonight, said someone in the shadows. And the spectators laughed. Above Frexy rolled to see. From a little door had emerged a small yapping puppet dog. Its hair dark as tightly curled as Frex's own. The dog bounced on a spring and the pitch of its chatter was annoyingly high. The laughter grew. Evening fell harder and it was less easy for Frex to tell who was laughing, who now was shouting for him to move aside so they could see. 
He wouldn't move, so he was bundled unceremoniously from his perch. The dwarf gave a poetic welcome. All our lives are activity without meaning. We barrel rat-like into life, and we squirm rat-like through it, and rat-like we are flung into our graves at the end. Now and then, why shouldn't we hear a voice of prophecy or see a miracle play? Beneath the apparent sham and indignity of our rat-like lives, a humble pattern and meaning still applies. Come nearer, my good people, and watch what a little extra knowledge ours for your lives. The time dragon sees before and beyond and within the true of your sorry span of years here. Look at what it shows you. The crowd pushed forward. The moon had risen. It's light like the eyes of an angry, vengeful god. Give over. Let me go, Frex called, and it was worse than he had thought. He had never been manhandled by his own congregation. The clock unfolded a story about a publicly pious man with lamb's wool beard and dark curly locks who preached simplicity, poverty, and generosity while keeping a hidden coffer of gold and emeralds in the double-hinged bosom of a weak-chinned daughter of blue-blood society. The scoundrel was run through with a long iron stake in a most whose hard scrabble plots had borne little during the dry year. Before he had even begun, they all looked guilty as sin. They followed him to the rickety steps of the canoe repair house. Frex knew that everyone expected this evil clock to arrive at any instant. Gossip was as contagious as the plague. He yelled at them from their thirsty anticipation. Ye are dull as toddlers reaching their hands to touch the pretty embers. Ye are as a spawn of dragon womb ready to suck on teats of fire. These were time-worn scripture imprecations, and they fell a little flat tonight. He was tired, if not at his best. Brother Frexbar, said Buffy, the mayor of Rush Margins, could you perhaps tone down your herring until we get a chance to see what fresh new form temptation might take? You have no metal to resist new form, said Frex, spitting. Haven't you been our able teacher these several years, said Buffy? We hardly had such a good chance to prove ourselves against sin. We're looking forward to, to the spiritual test of it all. The fisherman laughed and jeered, and Frex intensified his glower, but at the sound of an unfamiliar wheels in the stony ruts of the road, they all turned their heads and fell silent. He had lost their attention before he had gotten started. The clock was being drawn by four horses and escorted by a dwarf and his cohort of young thugs. Its broad roof was crowned by the dragon. But what a beast! It looked poised as if ready to spring in delicate way and served up his hungry flock as rose flank of minister. This panders to your basis instincts, Frex yelled, his arms folded, his face magenta with fury, but now the darkness was almost total. Someone came up from behind him to silence him, an arm circled his neck. He twisted to see which damn parishioner took such liberties, but all the faces were cloaked by hoods. He was kneed in their groin and doubled over, his face in the dirt. A foot kicked him square between the buttocks, and his bowels released. The rest of the crowd, however, was not watching. They were howling with mirth at some other entertainment put on by the clock dragon. A sympathetic woman in a widow's shawl grabbed his arm and led him away. He was too foul, too much in pain, to straighten up and see who it was. I'll put you down in the root cellar, I will, under a burlap, crooned the good wife, for they'll be after you tonight with pitchforks. The way the thing is behaving itself, they'll look for you in your lodge, but they won't look in my keeping room. Melena, he croaked, they'll find her. She'll be seen to, said his neighbor. We women can manage that much, I guess. 
In the minister's lodge, Melina struggled with consciousness as a pair of midwives went in and out of focus before her. One was a fishwife, the other a pallid crone. They took turns feeling. They took turns feeling her forehead, peering between her legs, and stealing glances at the few beautiful trinkets and treasures Melina had managed to bring here from Cowan grounds. You chew that paste of pin level leaves, Ducky. You do that. You'll be unconscious before you know it," said the fishwife. "You relax out. We'll pop the little sweetheart, and all will be well in the morning. Thought you would smell of rose water and fairy dew, but you stink like the rest of us. Chew on, my ducky. Chew on." At the sound of a knock, the crone looked up guiltily from the chest she was kneeling before and rummaging through. She let the lid close with a bang and effected a position of prayer, eyes closed. Enter, she called. A maiden with tender skin and high color came in. Oh, I hope someone would be here, she said. How is she? Nearly out, and so it be the babe, answered the, answered the fishwife. An hour more, I reckon. Well, I'm told to warn you, the men are drunk and on a prowl. They've been riled up by that dragon of the magic clock, you know, and are looking for frecks to kill him. The clock said to. They likely stagger out here. We better get the wife safely away. She can be moved. No, I cannot be moved, thought Melina, and if peasants find Frex, tell him to kill him good and hard for me, for I've never knew a pain so extraordinary that it made me see the blood behind my own eyes. Kill him for doing this to me, as the thought she smiled in a moment of relief and passed out. Let's leave her here and run for it, said the maiden. The clock said to kill her, too, and the little dragon she's going to give birth to. I don't want to get caught. We've got our own reputations to uphold, said the fishwife. We can't abandon the fancy lady thing in mid-delivery. I don't care what any clock says. The crone, her head backed in the chest, said, Anyone for some real lace from Gillikin? There's a hay cart in the lower field, but let's do it now, said the fishwife. Come, help me fetch it. You, old mother hag, get your face out of the linens and come dampen this pretty pink brow. Right-o, now we go. A few minutes later, the crone, the wife, and the maiden were trundling the hay cart along a rarely used track through the spindles and bracken of the autumn woods. The wind had picked up. It whistled over the treeless foreheads of the cloth hills. Malena sprawled in blankets, heaved and moaned in unconscious pain. They heard a drunken mob pass with pitchforks and torches, and the woman stood silent and terrified, listening to the slurred curses. Then they pressed on to the greater urgency until they came upon a foggy copse, the edge of the graveyard for unconsecrated corpses. Within it, they saw the blurred outlines of the clock. It had been left here for safekeeping by the dwarf. No fool he. He could guess this particular corner of the world was the last place jumpy villagers would seek tonight. The dwarf and his boykins were drinking in the tavern, too, said the maiden breathlessly. There's no one here to stop us. The crone said, So you've been peering in the tavern windows at the men, you slut. She pushed open the door in the back of the clock. She found a crawl space. Pendulums hung ominously in the gloom. Huge tooth wheels looked primed to slice any trespasser into sausage rounds. Come on, drag her in, said the crone. The night of torches and fog gave way. A dawn of, to broad bluffs of thundercloud. Dancing skeletons of lightning. Glimpse of blue sky appeared briefly, though sometimes it rained so hard that it seemed more like mud drops falling than water. The midwives, crawling on hands and knees out of the back of the clock wagon, had their little discharge at last. They protected the infant from the dripping gutter. Look, a rainbow, said the senior, bobbing her head. A sickly scarf of colored light hung in the sky. What they saw, rubbing the call of blood off the skin, was it just a trick of the light? After all, following the storm, the grass did seem to throb with its own color. The roses dinged and hovered with crazy glory of their stems. 
But even with these effects of lights and atmosphere, the midwives couldn't deny what they saw. Beneath the spit of the mother's fluids, the infant glistened a scandalous shale of pale emerald. There was no wail, no bark of newborn outrage. The child opened its mouth, breathed, and then kept its own counsel. Wine, you fiend, said the crone. It's your first job. The baby shirked its obligation. Another willful boy, said the fishwife, sighing. Shall we kill it? Don't be so nasty to it, said the crone. It's a girl. Ha, said the bleary-eyed maiden. Look again. That's the weather vane. For a minute they were in disagreement, even with the child naked before them. Only after the second and third rub was it clear that the child was indeed feminine. Perhaps in labor some bit of organic effluvia had become caught and quickly dried in the cloven place. Once towed, she was observed to be pretty formed, with a long, elegant head, form nicely turned out, clever, pinching little buttocks, cunning fingers and scratchy little nails, and undeniable green cast of skin. There was a salmon blush in the cheeks and belly, a beige effect around the clenched eyelids, a tawny stripe on the scalp showing the pattern of eventual hair, but the primary effect was vegetable. Look what we get for our trouble, said the maid, a little green pat of butter. Why don't we kill it? We know what people will say. I think it's rotten, said the fishwife, and checked for the root of the tail, counting fingers and toes. It smells like dung. That is dung, you're smelling, you idiot. You're squatting in a cow patty pie. It's sick. It's feeble. That's why the color. Lose it in the puddle. Drown the thing. She'll never know. She'll be out for hours in her ladylike faints. They giggled. They cradled the infant in the crook of their arms, passing it around to test it for weight and balance. To kill it was a kindest course of action. The question was how. Then the child yawned, and the fishwife absentmindedly gave it a finger to nurse on, and the child bit the finger off at the second knuckle. It almost choked on the gush of blood. The digit dropped out of its mouth onto the mud like a bobbin. The woman catapulted into action. The fishwife lunged to strangle the girl, and the crone and the maiden flared up in defense. The finger was dug out of the mire and shoved in the apron pocket possible to sew back on to the hand that had lost it. It's a cock. She just realized she didn't have one, screeched the maiden, and fell on the ground laughing. Oh, beware the stupid boy first tries to please himself with her. She'll snip his young sprout off for a souvenir. The midwives crawled back into the clock and dropped the thing at the mother's breast, afraid to consider mercy murder for fear of what else the baby might bite. Maybe she'll chop the tit next. That'll bring her drowsy frailness around quick enough. The crone chuckled. Though, what a child that sips blood even before its first suck of mother's milk. They left a pipkin of water nearby, and under cover of the next squall, they went squelching away to find their sons and husbands and brothers, and berate and beat them if they were available, or bury them if not. In the shadows, the infant stared overhead at the oil and regular teeth of time's clock. Okay, you guys, so I'm going to end it there. So, just to reiterate, this is not a G or PG podcast. So, there are going to be adult situations, and this book apparently does have a lot of those. And yes, it does use terms that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with now. So, just remember, this book was copyrighted in 93. I'm not going to condone any of it. I'm not going to say anything about it. It's just a book. If you do not like it, then you can always skip over this book. Um, and hit me up when I put out the next book, uh, just as an FYI. Otherwise, if you're still here with me and you're wanting to go forward and read what all the fuss is about or hear what all the fuss is about more like it, um, definitely stay tuned. I would like to hear your guys' predictions and or, uh, recommendations for other books. So hit up my, uh, 
Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. It's all there. It's all at the same handle at Dark Pegasus, D-R-K-P-E-G-A-S-U-S. If you happen to want to support the channel, um, it's not required, but you can. You can always hit up my Venmo or my Cash App. Again, they're still at Dark Pegasus or the dollar sign Dark Pegasus, D-R-K-P-E-G-S-U-S. And from there, uh, we're going to continue on with this book next time. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your guys' day. Bye.